We've called it Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. I took that title from uh, Cornelius Plantinga's book, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, so I plagiarized it. But now that I'm giving him credit, it's no longer plagiarism. And uh, it's a good little book if you're interested in it. He really wrestles with a lot of deep issues uh, regarding sin. And the title probably gives away some of my theology on how I approach sin. I got asked this week, we're going to spend five weeks in sin. Is it going to be hellfire and damnation? Because uh, I might not become for the next five weeks. And I thought, I don't think I would know how to preach that way. So um, we're going to explore sin and look at it in all of its majesty and the impact that it has. After church, I was given this quote by one of our budding six-year-old theologians. I think it's a good thing we have sin in the world. It makes us talk to God more. That kind of sums up my sermon. (laughs) It's great. In recent years, the church has lost an awareness of sin and why it is important. You heard, uh, you heard her give a definition of Lent. It's a time that we sacrifice. It's a time each year in the church calendar where we pause for a period of time, heading up to Resurrection Sunday, what we think of as Easter, to reflect on our humanity and the suffering of Christ. So last year, you may remember during Lent, we talked about uh, the tears, the people that have cried waiting for Christ to come. The year before that, we looked at Christ's seven last words on the cross, So this year, we're talking about sin. It's a time for us to pause throughout the year and think through our mortality, our sinfulness, God's grace, and what he's done for us. This has been lost on the church. Um, Recently, I had a chance to speak to a group of people who were uh, not Christian. In fact, they were anti-Christian. They were hostile to Christianity. They're my favorite groups to talk to. I love them. And um, so I got up there and I said, so I know that you guys don't like Christianity. The last thing you want to do is be talking to a pastor, but um, here we are. So when I mention the word Bible or I talk about Christianity, what comes to mind? That's okay. Give, spit it out. I've been around the world. I've heard it all. So out come all these negative, critical, hostile, pejorative terms. And then finally one guy says, the Bible's all about rules and Christianity is all about controlling people's lives. That's a pretty apt description of how the world looks at us, isn't it? Isn't it wild? Where, when in our history did we communicate that as our core thinking? So far from the truth, and yet that's how the world views us. So right off the bat, I want to raise a question for you that we're going to deal with all the way through the series. Do you think of the Bible, by the way, if you take out Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 21 and 22, the rest of this is about sin, okay? When you think of the Bible and you think about God's commands, do you think naturally in terms of God trying to restrict you? Somehow he's some big killjoy in the sky? Is that how you think of him regarding don't do this, do this, don't do this? Or do you think of God trying to protect you? That's a question we're going to wrestle with for the next five weeks. The different generations understand sin differently, and this is true in our church as well. The older generations often agonize over their sins. The younger generations are often indifferent to the sins, 
And if they're not indifferent, they simply want to know why it matters. That's kind of one of the things that happens at pub theology and other conversations around coffee. I know the Bible says that uh, friends with benefits is wrong. I don't know if I agree with it. Why? Why is it wrong? So there's a, there's a difference generationally in the way we think about sin and the way we approach sin. At one time, the statement, you have sinned, had the power to jolt people, but not anymore. In fact, it's just the opposite. You're no longer PC if you talk about that. It's time to change that. Let me tell you what some of our goals are for the next five weeks. One is we want to reorient you to the destructiveness of sin and talk about why. Why is it so destructive? What's actually wrong with it? We also want to recapture a core theology of Christianity. This is important. From the very beginning, starting with Jesus, the church wrestled with sin and what does that mean? And so we have very good statements and it's been, the, it's been part of our core from the beginning. We also want to more fully capture Christ's accomplishment at the cross and the resurrection. It's only made, the cross only makes sense in the context of our sin. And so in order to make sense of Easter Sunday, we really need to spend some time thinking about our sinfulness and what that means. Now let me tell you what we're not trying to do. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. I don't have to help you with that. Between God and you, you guys do a fine job on your own especially you former Catholics, okay? I know, I meet with you and have coffee. I could tell very quickly what your past is by how you approach the things that you're doing. My goal is not to make you feel guilty, certainly not ashamed, not at all. In fact, I appreciate so much your openness. I know many of you, and I know what you wrestle with, and I love your willingness to come forward and say, I'm struggling with pornography or adultery or I'm struggling with drugs or I'm, whatever, you fill in the blank. You see, it doesn't matter to me what your sin is. I love you just the way you are. What my bigger concern is, what is the impact of the sin in your life? So I'm going to paint a picture right now, I'll give you a short way to think about how I view sin. Okay? I'm going to come back to this over and over again. Here you are and here Christ is and you're being moved toward Christ. You're being transformed into the image of Christ. You're moving in the direction of Christ. Now, that's technical language. It's good language. We should use it. Paul uses it, being transformed into the image of Christ. But what does that actually mean? What it means is Christ is a perfect human. That's what it means. And we can look to Christ, men and women. We can look to Christ, and we can see what it means to be a flourishing, thriving human. We can look to Christ and see our full humanity, what we should be like. As you move toward Christ, you begin to grow more loving, more gracious, more forget. well, you should anyway, more forgiving, more willing to sacrifice and carry others' burdens. And what sin is, is sin is an obstacle in the way that blocks that. So when you come and have coffee with me and you talk about the sinfulness that you wrestle with, The question I'm thinking is not what's the sin. I'm not interested in the sensationalism of it. I'm interested in how is that blocking your movement to Christ. That's how I view sin. It is an obstacle. had a conversation last year with uh, Tim Glasgow before he stepped down as chairman, stepped off the board. And uh, we were talking about somebody in our church that is, to use Jesus' words, 
uh, a woman with many sins. I love that phrase. You know, that describes all of you, by the way. And, uh, and uh, he said, so you haven't, you haven't come to the elders with this person. I said, Tim, Tim, if I brought every person to you struggling with sin, the line would be down to the reservoir. He said, yeah, you're right. Every one of you struggles with sin. How many of you are sinners? All right, it's going to be an easy conversation then. Because you already know what's coming. It's great. So we want to really capture what Christ accomplished while at the same time not making you feel guilty. We believe in grace and redemption. Wherever you happen to be in life, you're not alone. I can assure you. See, grace has something to do with the way we approach sin. Redemption has something to do with the time that we allow. Because it takes a long time to redeem, doesn't it? Just look in your own mirrors. It takes a long time to get past the things that you struggle with. And so redemption does take a long time. But at the same time, it's important to speak up. Why? Why should we speak up? Why recapture an awareness of sin? Why restate the Christian doctrine of sin? We live in an era that does not encourage moral reproach in any way now. That's our culture. In fact, we often ignore, evade, or, or um, dis- ignore any discussion of moral wrongdoing. We have to reverse this trend, albeit in a gracious manner. We have to. Our culture's in trouble. We are. The word sin is now mostly found on dessert menus. Chocolate sin cake. I just Googled this. Don't laugh at me. Peanut butter binge. Yeah. Ooh. Center. Sin city cookies. These are sinful while lying is not. Wow. How did we do this grand reversal? How did that happen? You see, in order to fully understand grace, it is important to, to get a healthier perspective of sin and its impact. Another reason we're talking about it is because it's important to restate our doctrines again and again so that every generation learns them. That's important. We're one generation away from losing our faith, aren't we? So that's why on Wednesday nights, I'm teaching a class on basic theology. You're all welcome to come. Right now, we're working through the core doctrines of our faith here at DCC. What do we believe? And um, we decided to rotate this class every other year so people coming in can come in and learn. Why why is it important? Why are these things important to us? Plantinga in his book says, Recalling and confessing our sin is like taking out the garbage. Once is not enough. It's a good way to think about it. Recalling and confessing our sin is like taking out the garbage. Once is not enough. But why is it important to both understand and confess our sin? That is the topic of our series. In 1991, many of you, some of you weren't born then. Sorry about that. 1991, the Wall Street Journal published an article entitled, The Joy of What? And here's what they said. This is a quote. The United States has a drug problem. Surprise, surprise. And a high school sex problem, and a welfare problem, and an AIDS problem, and a rape problem. Things haven't changed much since 91, have they? But listen to the second half of the quote. 
None of this will go away until more people in positions of responsibility are willing to come forward and explain in, frankly, moral terms, it's either right or wrong, that some of the things people do nowadays are wrong. It's the Wall Street Journal, 1991. Has our culture lost this perspective? How about you? Have you lost your perspective? And what's right and what's wrong and why is it important? Okay, what is sin? What is it? Fundamentally, it's something that separates us from God. Yeah, you're, you're all familiar with that language. And you're probably all familiar with the basic Christian story that sin separated us from God and through the saving work of Christ, we now have been reconciled to God. What he accomplished on the cross. That's familiar to most of you. The gospel assumes something is wrong in the relationship between God and humanity. That started in Genesis 3. That's the story of the Bible. Because of the fall, there is perpetual hostility that characterizes our relationship with God. Here's some of the language the Bible uses. We are estranged from God. We're we're separated. We are trapped in darkness. We are defiled by moral impurity. We're enslaved to sin. We're dead in our sin. That's the imagery of the Bible. The good news is that Jesus uh, took care of this problem at the cross. For those of you that have turned to Christ in faith, you have experienced redemption. Christ took care of that. What I want to talk about in the series is what about the ongoing effects of choosing to sin now that you've been redeemed. So the first part about it, Christ has forgiven you. We're done with that part of the discussion. The question is now is what is the ongoing effect? Now remember I said here you are and you're moving toward Christ, perfect humanity, sin is an obstacle. How is it an obstacle? That's the the nature of our discussion. And right off the bat, today's sermon is the loss of shalom. The loss of shalom. That's the very first thing I want you to get. This is the real effect of you choosing to live, a, uh, to engage sin in your life, which you do. We'll come to that. We all do. And what does that mean? Central to the classic understanding of the world is the concept of the way things are supposed to be. That's why I entitled it not the way it's supposed to be. All of us have this built-in sense of the way things are supposed to be. In fact, that's the nature behind all of our division and arguing right now is we we don't like or we do like one or the other, depending on which side you're on, what's happening in our government because we all have a perspective that there's something better and this is going to get us there or it's not going to get us there. But we all have that innate sense about us. Arguably, we have the best justice system in the world and yet every one of us knows that we're not there yet. How disappointing if we are there. If we've already arrived, we haven't arrived. And we all know that. So from the very beginning of this written, recorded history, humans have been wrestling with the way things are supposed to be. You see, everything is supposed to be different than the way they are in our world right now. That's why we love the words of Jesus in John 10.10. I have come that you might have an abundant life and have it right now. And most of us are saying, really? We have it right now? Isn't there more than this? Boy, we got this entanglement between our spiritual life and our sinfulness that's just dragging us down. It's causing problems. 
We all have a grasp of the way things are supposed to be. This is captured in the Bible in the biblical language of shalom. If we live our lives as designed by God and culture is structured as intended by God, we experience what Plantinga calls a graceful restoration of creation. I love those words. A graceful restoration of creation. This includes a peace, and again I'm so quoting him, that adorns and completes justice. Think about the beauty of that imagery. <coughs> a peace that adorns and completes justice. When I use the term justice or social justice up here, what I'm referring to is the basic core of putting things right that are wrong. That's our job as Christians. That, by the way, is behind the word justification. We use the term justification, and we teach in Sunday school just as if I'd never sinned, but at the very heart and soul of that term is the idea of putting to rights all that is wrong. And it starts with you. That's why you're called the first fruits. And that's why we are responsible as Christians to bring justice out to the world. They know it's there. It should be there. They don't know how to get there. They've been trying for thousands of years and haven't made it. We know what it means to love people and love them well. We know what it means. Shalom is a bringing together of God, humans, and all of creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight. That's what shalom is. When we come together and God is present, and we are doing what's right, we begin to experience shalom. It's a human flourishing, a universal flourishing of all creation. In other words, shalom is the way things ought to be. It's the way things are meant to be. Our sin causes the loss of shalom. That's the first principle. And what is the effect? Why does it matter? It causes the loss of shalom. You see, the problem is we don't live our lives the way God designed. Sin lies at the root of all of our big miseries. Think about these. Loneliness, restlessness, estrangement, shame. I would put in suicide. Some of you wouldn't, but I would. Meaninglessness. This is not what we are created for. None of this. And so sin lies at the root of it. It's really popular in our culture today to bash Christians. When we forget that in the last hundred years, the great evil ideologies of the world, fascism, Nazism, all of those, communism, they have done far more destruction of human rights and dignity of humans than Christianity will ever do in its lifetime in the history of the world. Oh, we have our skeletons in the closet. Let's be clear about that and let's be honest. Don't shy away from it. But nowhere near what the evil ideologies did. Don't be ashamed to be a Christian. Don't let people drag you down. Well, because of this, it's easy to think of sin only as a spoiler of creation. It just wrecks the way we enjoy life. Well, that's true. It does do that. But it's far more significant than that. It's more personal than that. You see, resistance to redemption counts as sin too. Redemption is that process where you're moving to Christ and you're learning what it means to be more loving and more generous, more caring. And when you actively sin to stop that process, that, by definition, is sin. 
We can safely describe evil or sin as any spoiling of shalom, whether physically, such as through disease, morally, spiritually, or otherwise. And yes, I threw in the word morally. Anything that disrupts shalom is called sin. At the heart of sin, this destruction of shalom, is the damage done in relationships. Now remember, shalom at its core is a bringing together of God, humans, and all of creation. You can begin to understand why God hates sin. He hates it. Not because it violates his law. That's not the reason. He hates sin because it breaks the peace Because it destroys shalom, it interferes with the way things are supposed to be. That's why. He created our world perfect. And he created us to enjoy it. Sin came into the picture and destroyed all of that. And redemption is a process of restoring that. That's what the gospel is all about. That's the nature of the gospel. Let me read a passage to you in Romans. Paul talked a lot about sin. Um, Sometimes people don't like to hear it. But it's good to hear it anyway. Here's how much God hates sin. Listen to this language. This is Romans 1.18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Those are strong words. Those are strong words. Since what may be known about God is plain to them. No, the words are choosing to do it because God has made a plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. People are without excuse. We tend to frame the gospel in the West along the lines of, if you don't believe in Jesus, you're going to hell. We tend to emphasize the negative piece. Let's stop for a moment and think about what Paul just said. Because I love this language. You, yours is salvation to lose. Every one of you is created by God with the knowledge of God. The theologians down through the centuries have found all kinds of ways to describe it. The God-shaped vacuum, that sort of stuff. Everyone is without excuse. Everyone has the knowledge to turn to God. And God, all throughout the scriptures uses kind of a very variety of imageries. In the Old Testament, he says, if you search for me, I will be found by you. It's the idea of planting himself right smack squat in the middle of the road. You have no choice but to run into him or go into the ditch. That's the way God describes himself. You see, God doesn't want to lose people. And he made each person with that. So everywhere I go in the world, I know three things about people. Three things I'm absolutely confident in. Number one, God loves them infinitely more than I do. Number two, he's been involved in their life in far more intimate ways than I'll ever be. And number three, he's got more experience with their sin than I'll ever have. I'm so glad he's God and I'm not. So my job isn't to persuade anybody. My job is to join with them on the journey and love them and help them make sense of life. That's why when I'm sitting around the county in a coffee shop or a bar or whatever, I ask people, why are you angry about politics? Why are you angry about Christianity? What happened? Because I know the natural disposition should be to move toward God, not away. Something happened, and I want to know what that is. 
I hear all kinds of stories when I'm out and about in the county listening to people. My job isn't to persuade them. That's the job of the Holy Spirit. My job is to come alongside and help them make sense of their experience. That's what Romans teaches us. Romans 1.28, I'm going to come to the end. This is where that really complicated language about sexual orientation comes into play. We'll have that discussion on another day. But look at the conclusion of verse 28. Furthermore, they did not think it worthwhile <coughs> to retain the knowledge of God. So God, he said, okay, freedom. He gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what are not, not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. That's why theologians describe humanity with the term total depravity. What that means is every single atom in your being has been impacted by sin. That's what it means. No part of you has escaped. Don't think too highly of yourself. It's another way of saying it. So listen to what happens to humanity when God lets them go. They're filled with all kinds of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They're full of envy. Oh, have you ever envied anything? I'd ask you to raise your hands, but I might be too personal. Sinner. <laughs> murder. Oh, Jesus said if you hate somebody, you've already committed murder. You ever hated somebody who committed murder? Sinner. Strife. Have you ever caused strife in relationships? If you're married, you have. It's a guarantee. If you have teenagers, you definitely have. Deceit. Have you ever deceived somebody? Even a little white lie? Malice. Gossips. Slanderers. I know you people have never gossiped or slandered. And the list goes on and on and on. This list reveals that these sins are categorically the breaking of shalom. Because every one of these sins listed on here impacts another person. That's a relational issue. That's the breaking of shalom. That's what's meant by it. Communication specialists tell us that when we communicate with one another, only 10 to 12% is actual captured in the verbal, the words that we use. The other 80 to 90% is nonverbal. You know what that means? If you don't like somebody, you could pretend all you want and you can't fool them. That's what it means. They know. They know. This is the breaking of shalom, the breaking of relationships and the will for hurting of others. These all find their expressions in relationships. This is the problem with our sin right here. It's right here. It destroys shalom. That's bad. A little bit later in Romans 5, what's the answer? These beautiful words in Romans 5. Therefore, since we have... two parts to the answer. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace, we have shalom with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So, the peace with God has been reestablished at the cross. But what about peace with each other? That's found in Galatians 5, and a verse that's very familiar to all of you, the fruit of the Spirit. But what you may not know is the, the verses leading up to the fruit of the Spirit. Listen to this language. I'm in Galatians 5, 
13. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. That's what it means to be a Christian. We have freedom. That's why it's not our intent to make you feel guilty or ashamed or to control your lives. No, just the opposite. I want you to have the... I've, I've told many parents, give your kids the freedom to fail. They're going to fail. Do you want them to fail when they're at home with you and they're at our church where we can help or do you want them to wait till college? It's going to happen. Your only question is when. Let them fail now. Well, that's our thinking as Christians. Let people have the freedom to fail and sin so we can come alongside and help. You were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. Boy, this is the loss of shalom, isn't it? This describes what happens when we move in the wrong direction, when we start criticizing each other, we start slandering each other and gossiping about each other, hurting each other. This is what happens right here in our own church if we're not careful. Jump down a couple other verses. The Acts, oh, no, no, verse 16. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Walk by the Spirit, and you won't sin. You actually have a choice. You have a choice not to sin. Now, sadly, you're all going to choose to sin. I get that. I'm with you. I'm the same. Okay? But we have a choice. That's the freedom that God has given us. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. Now here's a very important passage in our theology. They are in conflict with each other so that you will not do what you want. No, our sin nature has not been fully redeemed. <clears throat> that will happen to glory. God did something more wonderful. He gave us his spirit to create tension. That allows us to still be like our neighbors while still moving on the road to redemption. Who on earth wants to be around a perfect person? It's the grace of God that he didn't make us perfect. That's what allows us to connect with the world. Or as my six-year-old theologian said, I think it's a good thing we have sin in the world. It makes us talk to God more. You see? This is an important part. We have this tension, this conflict inside. So when you feel that war going on, and you hate somebody, you're so angry at them, and you're feeling convicted, but you're angry, you're feeling convicted, and you're angry, perfect, perfect. That's that spirit of God doing his thing. He's not letting you go as far as you want to go, but he's still allowing you to stay as a human in a fallen world. And then come the lust of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit. You see, we do have a choice, but our freedom means responsibility. Our freedom means the restoration of shalom. That's why we go to one another and we seek forgiveness. We confess our sins. That's why we go to the people that we've hurt. To restore shalom. That's the reason. It's okay to feel embarrassed. It's not okay to feel ashamed. Ashamed keeps you from moving toward the Lord and moving toward each other. We have freedom. We have a choice. We can actually restore shalom every time we destroy it. 
That's the uniqueness of Christianity. No other religion teaches this. When we destroy it, which we do, we can restore it. So our decision to sin is not trivial. It's not. It's easy to get sucked up into the, uh, to the, the white lie, the deceit. Our sin doesn't hurt anybody. Yes, it does. It does. It breaks shalom with God and with each other. This is why it's important. Father, thank you for uh, <clears throat> sending your son. That action alone reveals that uh, you didn't give up on us. Um, I'm so glad you're God because I probably would have given up. But you didn't. You love us that deeply, that passionately. Thank you for not giving up. Thank you for sending your son. Now, Lord, I pray, help us as a community of faith. Help us to continue to practice the restoration of shalom in our relationships with each other. The continual encouraging and restoring of our relationships when they get broken, because they do. Our continued confession when we hurt people in sin. Thank you, Lord. In your son's name we pray. Amen. I'm going to ask the ushers to come forward and take the offering. Thank you. You're very generous. So rich a crown Oh, the bread and the wine The branches in the vine Oh, the bread and the As we prepare for communion, I'm going to read a verse. This is a perfect place to bring sin into the picture. 